I, I think it's not to get overly, overly idealistic about it uh, or, uh, I mean, I'm not a big fan of utopias or whatever. I mean, I like the messy vitality of things. So the idea that public space can happen in a suburban condition or even a rural condition, well, of course. Uh, so we don't get too caught up in that. I think it's, it's a balance of scale and proportion uh, is a big part of it. So, so it's not overscaled or underscaled. Uh, that proportion is always present. You know, that things are relative in scale to, you know, of course, the, the human body, but uh, to things like cars. You know, we, we, we're not trying to get rid of cars. I live in a place where there's more space than form. The idea that you would walk everywhere in this part of Arkansas would be, be nuts, you know. Uh, so how do you deal with a car? And how do you make that experience better? Our Harvey Medical Clinic, you know, we thought of the building as something you would engage at 40, 50 miles an hour and something you engage just walking or biking. But, you know, the parking lot becomes the public space. You have a series of bioswales, and then you can actually drive through the building, which makes sense because you can drop the patients off underneath. Right. right? So to, for us, that is a form of public space, right? Uh, and uh, no different in many ways than, uh, you know, park-like spaces or plazas or courtyards, right? They're all kind of part of a vocabulary, a space that's appropriate uh, to, to the scale and the types of landscapes we're working in. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 54 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am extremely excited to share this next conversation with all of you here today. And today on the show, I have Marlon Blackwell. Marlon is a practicing architect in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He serves as the Faye Jones Distinguished Professor at the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas. Marlon is integrally involved in every phase of the design process from programming through construction administration. For every project Marlon Blackwell Architects pursues, he's involved on a daily basis working to establish a design direction and works directly with client leadership on critical issues, ensuring a successful outcome and meaningful relationship. Now, since 1992, Marlon Blackwell Architects has designed for his clients award-winning environmentally responsive projects. Their belief that architecture can happen anywhere, at any scale, at any budget, for anyone, drives them to quite literally challenge the conventions and models that often obscure other possibilities. They use an economy of means to deliver a maximum of meaning in places where architecture is often not expected to be found. In every instance, they strive to express the richness of the places they work and the ideals of the people and institutions they so proudly serve. In this episode, we take a look at the importance of establishing a vocabulary in architecture, 
we dig into the elements of design that bring the most impact to the building surroundings and we discuss the most important attributes of a successful project when taken in the context of framing for the public realm. There's tons of great information in this episode and I greatly appreciate Marlon for taking the time out of his extremely busy schedule to discuss this topic of designing buildings really as frames of experience for the public realm with me here today. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. I promise you there will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Marlon. Glad to have you on here. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to have you on here. You're you're a pretty big name in architecture, and I think it's going to be a fun discussion. So, without further ado, you want to just jump right in? Sure. Just uh, hit hit me with your your best shot. <laughs> well, let's let's start off and learn a little bit more about you and your background. Um, basically, where you started, where the story of Marlon began, and then we'll we'll kind of take it from there. Um, okay. Um, how I began in architecture, right? Right. Yep. We don't have, how far did we go back? Right? <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, I think it's something that uh, the realization that architecture is something I wanted to pursue or study really came out of, you know, pursuit of other things initially. I mean, I, uh, when I was growing up, I, I grew up near the, uh, uh, near the Everglades, actually, uh, oh, wow. in South Florida. So I had a, you know, had a real love for nature. I had developed, and of course, if you're in, near the Everglades, there's a lot of things that can eat you. So a real fear of nature is a good thing too. So, I, but I had had this desire to be a paleontologist, and uh, you know, I love to put skeletons and bones together and pieces, and you know, I was very interested in, you know, what you don't see mm-hmm. uh, uh, in nature. In history, and then that sort of evolved uh, into uh, a desire to write, to be a journalist uh, or creative writer, because I, I love to tell stories. I love stories, uh, and then uh, you know, then it starts to evolve again. I, I all through my uh, uh, junior high and high school, and even part of college, I, I cartooned. I drew. A real passion for developing my own characters again, stories and and reductive uh, figures. Uh, I love the comics, and mm. so that was something I really uh, I really enjoyed quite a bit. I think I read someplace, and I've said this told this before. I read some article or something about like uh, majority of cartoonists for some reason or another have uh, like alcohol issues or something. <laughs> it's like you know I'm young, you know it's like oh I don't. Uh, be any part of that uh, and I would at the same time I was you know in in one of those classes you take in high school drafting classes or whatever and I we were asked to design uh, our own house what would that be uh, and build a model and so I did that and that was I was a lot of fun because you draw you make physical models uh, really tapped into the imagination uh, and I would have to worry less about alcohol problems <laughs> pursuing in our uh, architecture. 
in any event, so I decided to become an architect, which of course comes with its whole host of issues as well, <laughs> including our podcast. <laughs> Um, but that, that was it. So I kind of, you know, I'm not knowing anything. I've really read anything. And I just said, you know, when I graduate from high school, I'm going to go to architecture school and become an architect. And I romanticized that. I had imagined what that might be like. I had heard of Frank Lloyd Wright. But beyond that, to me, it was just a way to have a profession, but to draw it, to imagine it, to uh, have a creative outlet. Right. So that's how I began. So it's a long-winded answer to your uh, short question. but uh, it's just something that you sort of stumble and bumble along, uh, you know, asking questions as you go and trying to see what's going to be a good fit. Uh, right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so the, from paleontology to, to writing, that's the, uh, I guess. The comics. Yeah. To, yeah. And the yeah. comics and on. So do you yeah. think uh, paleontology, do you, do you use any of that fascination with structure in kind of yeah, in your I design? Mean, I think I, I'm very fascinated with uh, things that are nature made, you know, the uh, creatures and figures and how they sit upon the earth and how they meet the sky. And there's a kind of expressive character uh, that's very different from for every organism or every uh, type of creature, right? And mm -hmm. uh, so that's, and, and then I, I'm often looking for uh, analogies between creatures and then things that are more nature made or not nature made, but uh, culture made. So I would, I, you know, I would look for uh, early on in my work once I, you know, sort of started developing a voice or a sensibility about uh, what I wanted to do, I, I would look for patterns between, let's say, uh, a dragonfly and a camper, you know, that uh, had, you know, certain formal relationships or whatever. It wasn't anything scientific, but it was a way to discover the patterns that connect, that speak to perhaps a higher order uh, mm -hmm. of life, uh, you know, that everything isn't compartmentalized and distinctly different. It's actually, there's, we're, we're quite related, right, when it comes to to life and things, so sure. yeah, and sure. how and what we make. So that's that's been an ongoing uh, passion and interest, not only in my work but also in the way I teach and uh, think about uh, uh, you know, learning and, right. and developing a language or a vocabulary uh, uh, for uh, for the work around that. Yeah, that yeah. ideology is yeah, and, and you can you can see that in your designs and it's very it's very interesting to see how you're you're bringing patterns and shapes and really trying to pull in some of the natural features that you know are are apparent everywhere and uh, yeah yeah i mean like i think i did a series of early prototypes uh once i had gotten out of graduate school and I didn't have work so I was inventing projects but it was a way to uh, you know like what would happen if you took a bullfrog and kind of married it with the Villa Savoy you know kind of wow. weird so I, I call them the you know it's like uh, uh, the uh, unholy unions <laughs> of, of uh, the animate and inanimate um, 
or you know, I could sit a dragonfly camper, a you know, a uh, a fish with a boathouse or, or something like. That. So just looking at sort of new ways in which you could develop a formal language and a material set of material logics, but also how those could respond to specific conditions in the American landscape. You know, really trying to combine all of these things to find a voice uh, that can bridge the gap between the local, right, and a, a more universal understanding of the language of our discipline. Wow. Yeah. So you started to kind of create your own style and, and vision and, and how did, I guess. Yeah, I, tend, I tend to call it vocabulary, but yeah. Vocabulary. Uh, yeah. Well, because it's more typologically rooted. Uh, and I think typology is very different from style. Styles tend to be more fixed. Uh, typologies, I think, uh, for me, uh, are a little bit more dynamic and evolutionary, uh, and of course, styles evolve too. But they, they, yeah, I, I, they're not as evolutionary. dynamic yeah. or fluid. Yeah. yeah. So, so what did your what did your first foray? You said you were <laughs> coming up with your own designs before you actually started uh, your own career, but. What did that look like to start when you well, first started I mean, out? Well, it was ugly. Uh, mostly, I mean, again, I'm talking about after grad school and after 10 years of professional experience. So that I, I was working from uh, a somewhat more developed sensibility and body of knowledge, right? And especially a body of disciplinary knowledge. When I first started out in, in school, I mean, it was pretty raw. Quite frankly, uh, I really didn't know how to leverage the strengths that I had, and I wasn't a particularly disciplined student. Uh, I kind of worked in spurts, you know, and uh, uh, and that doesn't serve you particularly well uh, to become a well-rounded student that way, right? Uh, so I had, you know, I I struggled and I had moments of uh, lucidness and insight, and then a lot of it I was just trying to figure out, you know how to do my laundry you know, and, and uh, you know, get a date for Saturday night or something. But I think once I got out and got into the profession and began to see uh, and understand the complexity of what it is to actually make something, uh, then, then I got a little, I, I started to bear down a little bit, got a little bit more serious. Uh, I understood pretty quickly that working in an office from nine to five, at least for me, was only gonna satisfy a certain part of a creative kind of uh, outlet. That's a creative mm-hmm. outlet. Um, and so I started, I did a lot of work outside of the office hours on my own, whether it was freelance work or competitions or even my own kind of imaginary stuff. Yeah. So doing that for 10 years, it sort of evolved. I mean, it was, some of it was pretty bad, pretty ugly, but I started to <laughs> discover. Um, you know, some of my interests were still rooted in uh, uh, cartoons and cartooning and how to develop a, a reductive palette, right, of forms and figures uh, that could be very expressive in the most minimal way. So they're kind of a minimal means to achieve a maximum of meaning. Uh, and 
So that's something I just continue to work and become a little bit more self-conscious about. You know, it's intuitive. Uh, so a lot of the work that um, I discovered I was doing was actually develop all in profile in section, less so in plan. And, gotcha. and, and then uh, much more reductive because uh, especially like where I work in places like Louisiana, uh, so I'm in Boston, five years in Boston, but uh, it, you know, in uh, Arkansas, I mean, you know, most everything is some variation of a box, you know? So right. it's like, you know, you're not gonna do the parametric in Fayetteville, Arkansas, or you won't get a whole lot built. Uh, so, you know, how do I create high degree of uh, expressive character of the things we do through very simple typologies and forms. And that's where the abstraction starts to come in, where you really start to understand the familiarity of local form, but combine that with your understanding of uh, the contemporary language, right? And through that combination, you start to create something that's somewhat strangely familiar. There has a as a kind of uh, what I would call a productive tension uh, with the local, between the local and the global, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's good because it, it situates itself, I think, in a particular way that is relevant to its place, but at the same time uh, could be uh, a model or a way to inspire or to connect to places beyond your own. Well, that 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 evolved, uh, you know. Again, ten years in practice in uh, Southern Louisiana and Boston, uh, and then a desire to kind of dive back into uh, academics. So, going back to a master's program, but I I actually picked a program that would allow me to get a master's, but also be in Europe. So, I actually chose the Syracuse uh, program in Florence, Italy because I'd never really spent much time in Europe. I'd been to Mexico and that sort of thing. But so uh, spent a year there uh, and just was an amazing uh, experience. Great professors, uh, great program. Uh, got to see, of course, a lot of Italy, both the, you know, everything from the medieval and Renaissance to uh, the contemporary, you know, especially in that time, the 20th century uh, works of people like, uh, Moretti and Scarpa, uh, Libra, a host of Italian uh, modernists, uh, Tarani, but then getting to travel around Europe and really diving in, immersing myself in the folks like uh, Corbusier and Van der Rohe and uh, uh, Alto, just tons. So really, it was just a full immersion for a year. And then coming out of that with the desire uh, to perhaps teach and practice really become a liaison between the academy and the profession. And I had a lot of professional experience. I had taught a little bit at the Boston Architectural Center. Uh, I got a taste for it. I don't think I was particularly good at it, but I figured I could learn how to teach. Sure. But I felt like I had, might have something to say. And I thought, you know, the, the, the professors that when I was in school at Auburn, the ones that meant the most to me in many ways all had a large practice background or had pro practices. Right. So I, I thought I, I could be one of those folks and I got this great opportunity uh, after teaching a year at Syracuse. Once I, I got out of the, their program, they, they hired me and I could have stayed up there, but I really wanted to get back south. I'm from Alabama, from, from the south. And 
even though I lived all over in a military family, I'd still, my roots were there mm -hmm. culturally and otherwise. So uh, I got this great opportunity at the University of Arkansas. And they basically said, if you'll come here to uh, teach, uh, we will make sure that you get commissions to open up a practice. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, which was an incredible uh, offer. Uh, and so, yeah, I dove in. Of course, there were, at the time, uh, Faye Jones had just won the AIA gold medal a few years before. It was a great example of how you can operate in what many people would think would be in the middle of nowhere and yet have a national, even international, respected practice. So he proved it could be done mm -hmm. uh, and that you could, uh, as he would say, you could, rather than go to the world, you could bring the world to you. Uh, and I, I, that, was a, that was a great model. For me, and I, I got to know him, uh, became a, a mentor. I never worked with him or anything, but I just, you know, there was, uh, he was a very kind and uh, accessible person, mm -hmm. of course, a real genius in his own right. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how I started out. And, you know, within months I had some uh, work and um, I worked out of a spare bedroom uh, that I had. And then I, I got married to my now partner, Ati, but, uh, She's from Malaysia, and she got talked her into coming to Arkansas. And, uh, How'd that discussion go? She's <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, she thought it would be short-lived staying in Arkansas. She thought, oh, well, we'll stay here a few years, and I know he's going to want to move on. <laughs> she wanted to go to L.A. or something. She had went to school at the University of Miami. Uh, but she was kind enough to you know, come, and uh, <laughs> she worked at another firm. I mean, I just, you know, I really taught more than I practiced at the time, but I was just getting some, getting going and trying to, go through the process of sausage making that it takes to actually make something mm -hmm. on your own and, you know, get it constructed and get it to actually come out with uh, the truth and integrity that's also imbued uh, in those initial sketches, those initial thoughts. And that's a really tough to do that because very often architecture uh, is a death by a thousand cuts, you know, from the conceptual idea to what you get at the end. Um, so I, I was really insistent and in kind of working in projects at a scale that I could control to some degree, everything from uh, conceptualization to realization to the actual uh, construction. I would even help manage that. Um, I did that for, you know, probably, I don't know, eight years. Kids started coming. Second kid came along. She kicked me out of the house, said, you got to get an office, go open up an office. And then with the second kid, she started to think, hey, you know, why don't we work together, you know, because give me more flexibility with the kids and, you know, we could, we could start our own gig. And so I, I built up some momentum and everything and it started, it made some sense. And never, you know, to, she had, she had understood the digital. She was kind of uh, more evolved that way. I was still drawing with a nine B pencil and, you know, drawing everything by hand, all the details. So she, we transitioned some of the late nineties work that, Tower House, the Honey House. Uh, Honey House was drawn in pencil. That was probably the last project I did in pencil. But the, the Tower House, she actually, we had a, a tangerine iMac that we, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, did the first sort of Autodesk or, uh, you know, uh, AutoCAD drawings on. So pretty cool. Uh, but we opened it up. And, um, uh, and then at the same time, the teaching is also taking off. And MIT invites me to come teach there for a semester. Uh, and while I'm there, the tower house shows up on the cover of 
architectural record, which is a huge deal, kind of launches you into the national uh, uh, highway zone. You know, you, you mm -hmm. start to, you have a presence, you know, people like, who the hell is this? And mm -hmm. what are they doing out there in Arkansas? So that was a big, big boon, along with the Honey House, all of that kind of got out there. And we thought, okay, this is our moment. It's going to take off. And uh, for two years, we didn't hardly have any work. I mean, it was just nothing <laughs> happened, you know. Um, but we slowly started to get, you know, a bit more work here and there and sort of decided that to really have the impact that you I think need to have in architecture, at least in my opinion, we had to move beyond uh, the private residence. Sure. We really had to get into public work, institutional work, uh, and take that on. So we had an opportunity, and to do we were, had done a little bit of commercial work uh, and succeeded there in developing a more of a tectonic language rather than formal because they were uh, rehabs. But we got a chance to do a library and. Gentry Library, and we took that on, and that was a great adventure and a great outcome. But that really sort of sensed it for us that, you know, it really had to be more public institutional. And then to figure out how to navigate these building types and program types where uh, a lot of really good architects, a lot of are kind of effectively shut out, right? I mean, there's a lot of these relationships that are already sung up. And, you know, Mediocrity is also institutionalized, you know, so that, you know, it kind of repeats itself. And it's tough to break in and get, get a chance to be invited to dinner uh, and then get a chance to sit at the table and actually eat something. So that was, and we're still working from a model. Faye uh, uh, Jones was my model for practice, which is you don't have business cards, you don't collaborate, you don't do competitions, you don't market, uh, you basically, uh, you do whatever walks through the door. Your work is your calling card. Right. And that worked great. That worked, that worked really great up until the recession. And then, you know, the phone quit, quit ringing and, you know, it's tough. We've got people on board now and uh, some fairly serious work, but nobody's calling. And, you know, we're in a death spiral as a firm. Um, and I was inspired by Obama's stimulus packages, you know, so I thought, well, we, what we need is a stimulus. So we actually, rather than go through austerity and cut back and everything, we actually went to the bank. We've always had good credit. Uh, and we knew the banker. He's right across the street because one of the nice things of working in a small town. Yeah. And um, uh, he set us up with a credit line. And we were able to take money out of that and invest in, you know, changing our business model. So where we, uh, you know, we had a website. We redid our, uh, we did, uh, we did portfolios. We decided we would do RFQs, RFPs, all those things, and um, and and start teaming with people and mm -hmm. collaborating uh, and figuring out how to do that and stuff. And uh, it was uh, it was kind of rocky. I mean, we had to lay people off. I mean, it was tough. Uh, didn't take a paycheck for a year and a half. I mean, it was uh, you would you know you'd pay our folk, but. Uh, economically, it was very, very difficult. But within about a, nine months a year, we had a really nice high school project where we had teamed up with two other firms. And then we were fortunate to get the new commission for uh, the architecture school on campus. Mm -hmm. And so things then took off from there. But it was really, you know, changing the business model and saying, okay, we've got to come at this a different way. Or 
we're going to be put, we're putting ourselves in a box. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So I'm just rambling on. If you, you, you probably have more questions. <laughs> but, no, that's, but, that's, yeah, that's it's, very it's interesting like, to see. I know, you, you know, it's like, it, it's a, it's a roller coaster. I mean, that's, that's, and every time we used to think, oh man, we're pulling into the train station. We're going to get off the roller coaster. We're going to be, up, we're going to be on the gravy train. Right. It's going to be great. And then we're back. As soon as you get up, you think you're sitting on the gravy train. It's really just another section of it. Just train. drops. <laughs> yeah, just drops <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's been the story. Anyways. Uh, well, yeah. no, that's, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Cause you know, I, I have noticed that, your architecture does speak for itself. I mean, it's very iconic. It's very um, noticeable. You have, we're talking about vocabulary. It's very identifiable in the area when there isn't much change and where mediocrity is the norm. Um, but you also have to get those projects in the door, right? So, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a little tough, bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we live in the land of beige. <laughs> so if you do anything outside of beige or anything uh even if it's just riffing on you know vernaculars and things like that it stands out you know? mm -hmm. it, it's like turning the volume up to 11 you know uh so it doesn't take much right right but what's difficult is to, for it to be good just to be novel and different isn't enough obviously you have to it has to be useful Mm -hmm. where i live it's not useful you can't create a value proposition with it they're not going to invest in it. right right let's talk about that for a second just when you're initially jumping into a project um what are your initial thoughts how do you how do you begin to start to develop an idea um and i know that's a big question so sure. maybe let's look at it macro macro wide here if if just those initial thoughts of creating a concept uh well i mean it, it requires a lot of research you know first of all you know we uh we look at projects um we don't have any bread and butter in our office right so we don't have a sunglass hut account or anything <laughs> so every project is important no matter how uh small or simple in scope or how complex. Um, so we're, uh, all of these projects we're doing are contributing to a larger meta project uh, where, you know, we're looking at particular issues, and, uh, things that are central to our core values. Um, so we've built that up over time. And as, as I was saying earlier, we've also spent a lot of time getting familiar with current discourses, past discourses, uh, vocabulary, you know, contemporary vocabulary, really understanding how to use that to help with what we, wherever we're working. So what is the kind of local form or conditions, uh, material culture of where we're working. So that is, you know, cause you're not, I don't want to be able to believe we start from zero and here's the, Here's the recipe because that <laughs> you have to have right. something built up. Sure. You don't, you don't create out of nothing, but uh, typically when we get a project and we're fortunate enough to you know, secure a commission or project, it's really about the site. It's about being on the site. 
It's about understanding, you know, the basics uh, of, of the environment, you know, where the sun is, where the where the wind is, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, the uh, the terrain, uh, the configuration of the site. Uh, am, am I going to be of the site? Am I am I, am I going to disengage from it? Uh, you know, am I going to bury into it? You know, these sorts of things are all really about gets back to those early ideas about how things sit upon the earth, right? And the mm. expressive character that comes with that, right? Uh, and, and then really thinking about the typology, the building and program and getting familiar with that. So we're, we're sort of simultaneously collecting information. Um, and then typically what will happen, uh, once I get a sort of understanding of scale, I will make some drawings. Mm -hmm. Those are usually uh, a series of sections or three-dimensional drawings made with a 9B pencil, a soft pencil, and yellow trace, uh, typically. Uh, Old and, habits and then, die hard, right? You get yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's I can. I'm really quick with that. So, and yeah. then, and then some diagrammatic uh, plans. You know, basically more uh, typological in the way that you know. What kind of, uh, you know, is it a, is it a center void? Is it a linear scheme? You know, what is? So, and then how that, uh, you know, responds to the site. So that's the initial beginning. And then what happens, I have these, you know, obviously a, a great team here at the MBA. I have folks that they will take those sketches and put it immediately into uh, BIM mm -hmm. uh, and three-dimensionalize it and with, along with all the other information we have and create a workflow. So that'll, there'll be output from that and it'll be raw and rough, but then I'll trace back over it or sketch back over it, give it back. Then they, and then I'll look, say, hey, we need to look at this option, this option, this option. And then it just, then the process keeps going, right? Yeah. And there's this workflow back and forth between the analog and the digital hmm. to, to the point where uh, initially, it's more and more analog, and but then as it evolves, it becomes more digital. Right. You're always, you always have the yellow trace there, and and I require that with my folks in the firm. You must be able to draw by hand as well as digital, and be able to create your own workflow. And you know, it doesn't have to be pretty. You know, why people wear? Oh, I don't draw well. <laughs> these are thinking drawings, right? We're not going to exhibit them, you know, in an art gallery. So. Yeah, and that's how we begin a project. And, and then it's a lot of questions. We ask a lot of questions uh, of the client uh, as well as ourselves. Uh, you know, why are we doing this? Is this the best you know, approach? That sort of thing. But we also, what I'm leaving out here, and I, and I shouldn't, is that we spend a lot of time really listening to the users, uh, to the clients, what their aspirations are, what their needs are. So we're addressing those as we go. Right? Mm -hmm. So they are those concerns, those needs, the conditions around use are embodied and thoroughly integrated into the responses we're making. Right. Even though I my initial response may be somewhat arbitrary, not exclusively, but you know, uh, we account for everything in the creative process. Uh, uh, I think Susan Sontag said this, except for the arbitrary, which is always there, 
um, how you begin or where you make a move or whatever. And we sort of embrace that too. Gotcha. So when you're, when you're initially pulling together that first concept, you're seeing how it, it uh, relates to the site and I guess, how do you visualize when you're on the site, maybe that, that interaction between the building and the public space or even just around the building in the, just that interface, how does that, uh, yeah. how do you have that interaction? How do you start to visualize that? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's through the act of drawing, of course, but it's also through an understanding that, you know, if one of our aspirations in our work, if, especially if it's public work, that it has, needs to come with public space, mm. right? Um, yeah, even in the private work, uh, we, we think about, uh, you know, these opportunities for people to socialize and to gather, but also opportunities for solitude. And that still can be part of a public condition, right? Sure. And so how you scale that space, what's appropriate, and, and then how is that set up as it meets the building? And, and does it permeate the building? Oh, and that's where typologies come in. You know, you look at a dog trot and you understand that that space flows through a dog trot, you know, where you, you, know, you open up the middle uh, and you can move through it a breezeway, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that will... That'll be one type of interface, right? A porch, uh, you know, a deep overhang, a cantilever, you know, something that creates uh, a liminal zone mm-hmm. between the building and the public space, right? So um, it gives the opportunity for the building to embrace the public, right? Physically. Right. So, Reach out. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense for us. Uh, in places in the South, right? So mm-hmm. Arkansas, you know, just where we'll, we just did a park in uh, Memphis that, you know, is all based on porches and porch lane Shelby Farms. But we just completed a project in uh, in Memphis, uh, not Memphis, excuse me, in Michigan, in Detroit, where, you know, that's less of an issue. Sure, uh, it's functional. Do, yeah, we do some, but it's mostly shrink wrap, but we have courtyards. In that case, and because they needed controlled areas for this early childhood learning center to for play, uh, or ways to fold the landscape into the building again to create senses sense of security. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're always thinking about how you know the experience on a day to day basis for the users and for the visitors is enhanced through the architecture. Right, it's a framework for living. Right. Um, but we're also very mindful of how we respond to the environment, those particularities of the environment where we're working. And, and then back to the material culture uh, where, you know, uh, we're looking at the raw material and, and how that through tradition and craft it is uh, transformed, right? You know, the, you know, basic forest or transforms in different types of uh, products uh, or stone, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And we find ways that we're always looking for ways to locally source uh, what's available to us and what's renewable. Yeah. 
Yeah, and kind of to to include this and come back a little bit to um, that that initial phase, but uh, of seeing how and understanding the needs of the public is is really what it sounds like is is you're basically taking that input and, and finding ways to integrate the architecture into the needs of the people and right. and so how do you believe that uh, or what what makes that successful what what uh, attributes of a project or a, a, something that you're working on that that really frames the public realm and, and adds to the public realm mm-hmm. um, what what kind of attributes of these projects do you see? I, I think it's not to get overly, overly idealistic about it, uh, or uh, I mean, I'm not a big fan of utopias or whatever. I mean, I like the messy vitality of things. So the idea that public space can happen in a suburban condition or even a rural condition, well, of course. Uh, so we don't get too caught up in that. I think it's, it's a balance of scale and proportion uh, is a big part of it. So, so it's not overscaled or underscaled. Uh, that proportion is always present. You know, that things are relative in scale to, you know, of course the, the human body, but uh, to things like cars. You know, we, we, we're not trying to get rid of cars. I live in a place where there's more space than form. The idea that you would walk everywhere in this part of Arkansas would be, be nuts, you know. Uh, so how do you deal with the car? And how do you make that experience better? Our Harvey Medical Clinic, you know, we thought of the building as something you would engage at 40, 50 miles an hour and something you engage just walking or biking. But, you know, the parking lot becomes the public space, and a series of bioswales, and then you can actually drive through the building, which makes sense because you can drop the patients off underneath. Right. right? So to, for us, that is a form of public space, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, different in many ways than uh, you know, park-like spaces or plazas or courtyards, right? They're all kind of part of a vocabulary, a space that's appropriate uh, to, to the scale and the types of landscapes we're working in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really, haven't had done a lot of urban projects. We're doing one now in Boston, but uh, we call a lot of our projects, even when they're in towns, urban pastoral. <laughs> because a lot of it just used to be farmland. It's been annexed. Uh, right. And even to be close to downtown, it might be, Jesus, just 30 acres of empty stuff. You know, what do you, I mean, you can't fill all that up. Right. Uh, so, so how do you do with the, deal with the spaces in between? And a, a basic motto we've had is that the forms are important, but the spaces between the forms are perhaps even more important. So always have being attentive in an inclusive way of all the space that you're given. There isn't just the figure in the ground, the plus and then the minus, right? For us, mm-hmm. it's all plus, 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 figure, figure. And uh, I think it's a, it's a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a different way of looking at it, but it is more, it is a, a value that we, a core value of how we look at every project. Right, more, more holistically, you're not just providing a building in a space right. you've you've created right. you've choreographed the space around the building to provide yep. uh, um, 
the user a uh, an experience throughout. Right, right. And then working with our you know landscape architects, you know that often happen. We all try to get on the same page in that regard, and and that further enriches uh, that experience as well. Right, right. Well, looking forward. I know you don't have a whole lot of time left, so I want to I want to kind of take a, a step forward and and look at where you're going and where your firm is going, and what do you see the legacy of Marlon Blackwell yourself and your your firm as a whole? Just yeah, uh, that's that. Yeah, the, the well, I don't know the legacy legacy thing is for other people. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean, we we are basically trying to walk the line in our own truth. That's, you know, try to understand the truth as we see it, the true things that we search for, and just kind of walk the line in that, in that regard. Uh, but allow the work to evolve. And I think what induces the work to involve are two things. One is to get to continue to practice and keep doing the work, uh, even if it's the same type of building type. We've done, in 2009, we got the chance to do our first educational facility. We've done probably 10 uh, <laughs> since then. And every time we can take ideas that we discover, find, we, we reiterate them, we fold them back in, and we keep getting better in that type. So that's one trajectory of where we're going just keep getting better at what we're doing in particular types. The other is to have more types uh, <laughs> to work with. And so uh, we are changing scales. Like we said, we're doing our first tall building. Uh, we're doing uh, our first embassy. Oh, wow. Which uh, is really exciting. Um, we'd love to have the opportunity to do, you know, a museum or all these other projects that we haven't had uh, you know, more cultural uh, work, but mm -hmm. we love getting to do the educational uh, and the recreational, you know, we're working with a lot of parks. So I, I see that continuing to happen and, yeah. and to evolve, but I'm happy, you know, if I just keep working even in the same typology for a while, I'm always learning something because I know whatever project we're working on, whether it's a carport uh, or, you know, or an embassy, or we're doing a new sports medicine facility. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all part of the meta project, right? It's all part of this larger project uh, that we're working on that uh, uh, deals with the relevancy of architecture and uh, how it enriches the day-to-day -day experience of people's lives. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, how it can be an architecture um, you know, uh, in its place and of its place and for its place. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the environment, but talking about the folks that live there. As well. right. Yeah. So that, that that's what we're doing. We just want to get better at what we do. <laughs> well, we, still, you know, yeah. That's still building the legacy, whether or not you see yeah. it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say, you know, I want to be remembered as blah, 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 fill sure. in the blank. Yeah, I'll let like, other folks figure that out. <laughs> right, right. But your work explains 
uh, your legacy for you. So. It should speak for itself. I mean, I think right. I go back to Faye. I mean, you know, that's what he always told me. He says, you know, the work's the calling card. The work is, it is the way you have to contribute is the mm-hmm. work, you know, and, and that's how we, we sort of thought of that. And the only thing we can hope for is uh, more and more opportunity to do the work. And that's, that's our goal. But, you know, we're now getting into a position where we have to be, I think, um, and I'm, I'm getting from within my firm, you know, guys saying we got to be very careful about what we decide to do or not to do. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But uh, I think, uh, I think we will continue to try to underscore and demonstrate and be a model for in the profession uh, or as a firm that, you know, says, hey, architecture can happen anywhere at any scale, at any budget, and for anyone. And that it's not just reserved for the elite few, but it's, it's it should be available to everyone. And so, you know, we're going to continue to fight that good fight. Yeah, you are definitely well on your way. And uh, I, I really appreciate all your time, Marlon. If you want to absolutely, man. just uh, tell us where we can find out a little bit more about you and your firm and... Well, just uh, do what I do. If I want to find out about something these days, I just go to Google. Google, (laughs) You know, it's not about getting the right answers, just asking the right questions. So just ask a question, whatever you want to know. Just don't ask about my criminal history or (laughs) uh, hopefully you won't find anything. But, uh, but, you know, you can find us at uh, MarlonBlackwell.com. I believe it's our our website. And we do have a a new monograph will be coming out in – May of 2022. Okay. It's called uh, Radical Practice uh, of Princeton Architectural Presses, uh, the publishers. And uh, it should be a, a, a really, uh, I don't want to say too much about the book, but it's it's going to be featuring a, about 14 projects, uh, but also through the lens of uh, the, the photographic work of uh, Tim Hursley, uh, okay. a well-known architectural photographer, uh, and the work he's been doing in kind of really documenting the underbelly of the American landscape uh, yeah. and the detritus and flotsam and jetsam that we find in that landscape and how that in some ways really informs our own, our own efforts. So it'll, I think it'll, it'll be a, a monograph with a different twist to it. So, but okay. be on the lookout for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, like I said, I really appreciate your time, Marlon. It's, it was a pleasure to hear about your experiences and I would love to keep in touch. Absolutely. Please do. And uh, good luck to everybody out there and please be safe. Be well.